This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. This week's episode is a chat with writer, director, Madeline Olnick, whose new movie, Wild Nights with Emily, is in theaters. I just saw it and uh, loved it so much. I reached out to Madeline and was like, when can we talk? And she was like, honestly, tomorrow. So that is how, that is the uh, full Cami stamp of approval is when you interview somebody within 24 hours. Um my mom will make a guest appearance in this podcast. Woot woot. And if you could please review and rate the show on iTunes. I've been asking for that the last couple weeks. And I am noticing all of these beautiful ratings. Give it five stars and enjoy the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still have folks on this podcast introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Of course. My name is Madeline Olnick, and I'm a playwright and a filmmaker, and I live in New York City. Thank you so much for, we made this happen in, I think, 24 hours. Like, I think yes, it was just that, a- It's amazing. Yeah, I think- You got so, a crackerjack team. <laughs> I do have a great team of, uh, hello, Jordan, who's recording us right now, and awesome producer, Sierra, who helped- set this all up. And I also went through uh, Jackie Monahan, who is <gasps> in your movie. That's who gave me the email address and like connected it all. Um, she is the greatest. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't know each other well, but I was so happy to see her on screen and she crushed it. Actually, I should just she, say what we were talking about is Wild Nights with Emily, um, yes. which is your movie that's currently in theaters. And I do want to share something with the listening public which is when we had our first, uh, like our premiere, Jane Krakowski was in the audience. And afterwards, she was like, who was that? Meaning Jackie, because Jackie Monahan, who's an out stand-up comedian and performer, was so funny. She just, she she's is so funny. She is so funny in this, in this movie. Um, well, I think I saw it. I think I saw it. Mom, when did we see this movie? Did we see it on Sunday? My mom is here in the studio. She's in can the. Can she have a microphone too? She's please? in the booth. Yeah, you want to come in here and talk to me? You can if you want to. Do you that want to? That would be great. I would like for her. Do to Do you want to come in and talk to me for a second? I will. I will relieve her in a moment, but she can come talk to me for a second. That would be great. I don't want her to have to work the whole time. You can come in here. I won't um, ask her too many questions. Yeah. Do you want to? Are you okay with that? Yeah. Awesome. I think. Can this mic go on, Jordan? Awesome. Yeah, why don't you sit down right there and you can use those uh, headphones if you want. Oh, and great. this is my mom. Um, you can't really see her actually, I'm realizing, hi. but she'll and be... And what's, what's her name? Well, this is my mom, Brenda. Brenda. Hi, Brenda. Hi. Oh, great. Hi. I'm so glad you could join us. <laughs> oh, it's quite a privilege to join you. It's exciting. Yeah. Well, it, mm -hmm. It's exciting because one of the things, one of the ideas I had in making this movie was I wanted to make a movie that mothers could go with their kids to see. Parents could go with their kids, with their teenage mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so the fact that you both went is, 
I've only had a few mother-daughter, mother-kid, child-parent teams come. Mm -hmm. I had a funny experience a couple weeks ago that I'll tell you about, but the fact that you can both speak to your experience going together... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, would be great. Yeah, we we well, we went with um. There was a group of my friends that were wanting to see a movie, and I and I. I mean, honestly, just on the strength of your poster, so like, congrats to whoever. Obviously, I'm a huge Molly Shannon fan. Yeah, but the strength, but like the art is really great. Um, so, oh, good. Yeah, so I had seen it in a local theater, and we went to this like art house theater, and I suggested it of the movies that were there, and Mom, you. You were sitting next to me. Right. And, like, cracking up. Yes. Um, and also feeling— And also being thoughtful about it, too. Oh, being thoughtful about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Brenda, what did you expect when you went to the theater? Like, what did you think was going to happen during the movie? This is this is Wild Nights with Emily, which is now in theater. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I—, I of course, am of the um, group that studied Emily Dickinson thinking that she was a recluse. And so when it was about, you know, Emily Dickinson reading just some of the literature, I thought, well, if, you know, if Cameron would like to see it, I'll go. But I, I don't know how much there'll be to say because if she was a rec, I mean, maybe I can find out why, you know, hmm. she was a recluse. And so... um and then, of course, Molly Shannon um, has always made me laugh for a long time. So I was trying to figure out how those two ideas would be would be married, you know? Right, because you thought, how could Molly Shannon be playing miserable Emily Dickinson? <laughs> right, right. So um, I kind of went into it with that. And then um, it's, you know, fun to be in Los Angeles and doing anything with Cameron. And so mm. I, I went along with that as well. Um, that's nice, Mom. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but then we, like, had a great time. We had a great time. Yeah. And the people that we were with um, 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 loved it as well. Uh, a married couple, a young married couple, a man and a woman. They thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, we went, with, we went to see this movie with, uh, with straight people. You know, yes, yeah. um, even straight people, even straight like people, like like you, Mama. Uh-huh. Yeah. Even straight people, <laughs> even straight people, right? <laughs> like this movie, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I won't put you on the spot too much, but I really appreciate you coming in and speaking for a second. Wait, I just have mm-hmm. a yeah. few more questions sure. for my mom. <laughs> yes. Sure. So sure. when you saw the movie, so afterwards, what did you think about when you thought about everything you had been told about Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. and afterwards, what did you think about? Um, why this happened? Well, I thought it was a, a terrible injustice, first of all. Um, and then I was interested to actually look at the transcripts myself somehow to see where the name Sue was erased. Um, and I guess those were the first two things that I thought about. Um, oh, well, we have, we have a really great, I have put together this historical packet because when I, we first premiered the movie at South by Southwest, mm. a lot of the reviewers thought that I had made the story up. So I had to put together this packet. It, it was like the, I looked at it almost like I was presenting a case in a courtroom uh-huh. and I had to mm-hmm. compile all my evidences. Right. And so I actually made this one document called Emily's Obvious Letters. 
And Cam, I'll send it to you because it's just laugh out loud funny. Mm-hmm. How obvious. And these are letters that were actually never erased. I mean, there were oh. a few that were erased, but then there was a majority mm-hmm. of them that have just been sitting out there. I mean, a lot of them were published in 1999. And oh. it's kind of, people have been so invested in this history that they couldn't integrate they had they so had this one narrative of Emily Dickinson in their mind mm-hmm. that even when they were given new pieces of information they couldn't integrate it into this image they had in their head so it's it's i found it laugh out loud funny how obvious <laughs> these letters were uh, sure. they were so obvious well maybe we and, should also say can i just just give some context just for anybody that's listening sure, that hasn't sure. seen the movie yet sure um how much context are you giving people i guess that, i guess what we'll say this is what the movie's about is the the love life that emily dickinson yes, did yes. have and a long time love um and the way in which that long time love um was removed from her story through like erasure, but actually right. fi- actual physical erasure. Yes, like right, right. But also marketing too. Through marketing, we see, we sure. see the marketing. And yes, we do. Yeah, and that was a big part of her success, of Emily Dickinson's success, was the idea. Okay, maybe she was a genius, but she never wanted anyone to read her poems, and she never wanted to be published, and she was miserable, and no one loved her, and look at the price she paid. That was all part of what allowed the world to celebrate her. Um, The idea of erasing the very normal um, desires that she had as a writer to be heard, the very normal ambition that she, of course, had. Anyone who writes 2,000 poems, of course they want them to be read. But instead, it was all twisted to make her acceptable. And then this kind of erasure of women's stories and of queer stories that happens creates an environment where, you know, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, it was like no one had ever seen an ambitious woman before. And all of a sudden, we're believing stories about a pederasty pizza parlor because she's just a freak. She's a witch. You know what I mean? Sure. And, um, but um, what was really interesting to me was the idea of how much... I, I wanted to make a movie that just showed her life as it was because I want, also wanted to make a movie that would last... Um, I feel like our society is changing really fast in a good way, um, in a bad way with Donald Trump, but other things are very good. Um, And I didn't want to sort of explain too much because I felt like people's understanding is going to change over time. And I wanted the movie to be accessible like in the future, like 10 years in the future. I wanted Mm -hmm. people to be able to watch this movie and still and still be able to absorb it um, and just see her life as it was, if that makes sense. I just want to say one thing to Brenda. I just want to tell this story. It's a little bit sad. I can tell it knowing. Uh, my sister will never listen to um, a podcast that has a query. <laughs> But I was trying to get her to bring my nephew in L.A., and she wouldn't bring him and to our L.A. screening. She was like, oh, it's inconvenient. And I was like, well, I'll do a Q&A in Pasadena. And she was like, no, no, no. It's don't worry about me. And I was like, finally, like, will you bring him or not? Like, he's in 10th grade. And she she was admitted that she didn't want to bring him because it was a queer film. And then finally, I was like, 
Oh, you know what? This film showed at Harvard. So if he went to Harvard, he would have seen this film, possibly. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, she brought him. <laughs> she was willing to bring, like, when all of a sudden there's status attached. Um, but the point is, is that we tried to make a movie that had a lot of poetry. And there's, like, a, it's a movie that I really hope people will bring their high school and junior high school kids to. Um, so, and that there's something there like you were saying, Brenda, where you feel like you could, you were surprised and that you had a lot to talk about and everyone had a lot to talk about afterwards. Right, right. Um, yeah, I I, um, I wish you best success with it because I think it's um, important. Well, thank you Thanks, so Mom. much. And I know I... Thank you so much. And I know I yanked you in here, so I appreciate you. That's all right. All right. Enjoy the rest of the... I'm going to be Enjoy listening. the rest yeah. of the thing. Anyway, Thank you. thanks for being in here. Mm-hmm. This is this is your is this your sister? You said yes, yeah, my sister. Yeah. Is that? Do you have other siblings? Two. I have three altogether. And uh, where are mm-hmm. you in the age order? Um, I am three, number three. There, my brother is younger. My other sister, one of her kids is in the film, was an extra and did a lot. Oh, she wow. was in the film. She's uh, she's in college. She's just graduating this spring. And um, so she, you can see her in different parts of the film. And um, But I really, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I always felt like I wish when I was younger I could have seen cinema that, made me start wondering about what did I, how did I feel romantically in my life? Or how did I identify? Like, I didn't get to see any of that from, like, a young age. Um, and there wasn't, I like, something that I could see with my parents. My, my dream would be to make a queer rated G movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is PG-13, <laughs> they say, for sexual content. I don't think it's that Oh, yeah, because they, like, um, make out just, stuff. I mean, I just was, literally... <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I mean, it was actually, it got the 13. Instead of just PG, it went to 13 because of the moaning sounds that Austin and Mabel make when oh. Emily's listening upstairs and those are just jokes. Oh yeah. Like but that but it was like PG thirteen wow. for explicit sexual sounds or something like that. <laughs> um I mean they so. work I mean that's fu- that's funny. Wow. Yeah. Um I hear what you're saying. I mean I definitely can relate to that, of course. I, I think um well, right. The idea that like queerness is um adult somehow is something that I I've talked to um, very recently another guest on this podcast, Chris Nee, who created uh, the show Doc McStuffins, which is a, a like really popular children's television show. And Chris is a lesbian. And I, when we were talking, I was talking about like that thing where it's like um, we don't really talk about this anymore. But but prior to marriage equality, like the we have to protect the children um, right. messaging was so strong. I feel like we've switched to other messaging now. Like it's right. like we have to protect us in bathrooms or something. Like we like just right. switched to that. But right. that was um, so strong. And so it was I guess horrible. I guess like then hearing you know um, your your particular even this still in your family about your film like this is not in inappropriate film um for 
I mean, very, let's see. One time I was sitting on a plane next to a guy who was watching the television show Billions, and um, uh-huh. Paul Giamatti had a ball gag in and was being Oh, I know. That's, that's the on, pilot episode. Right? <laughs> right? And I was watching um, the movie—oh, um, my God. What is it? I was watching the movie Carol, and the way that Carol had been That's, edited— That may be the greatest movie ever made. It's so good, right? So right. so the way that Carol had been edited for, for the plane um, uh-huh. was that every even kiss had been taken out. Oh, my so God. when I got to the end of the movie, it was then—it was now a movie about um, a husband who got mad about— like his wife having long looks like it didn't even it, the movie didn't even make sense anymore because wow. there there was because nothing had happened between the characters and um that's funny anyway i caused so like i guess a, like did a they stink. take did they take out um you did i want to hear this tell me no i caused a stink i um had like the thing where you buy like about like 30 minutes of internet i tweeted about this and a friend of mine who his name is trish bendix is a writer uh, yes um, yes yeah so trish picked up that I tweeted about this and at the time worked for a property that was owned by MTV. And so then MTV News picked it up. And then from there, CNN picked it up. Like um, HuffPo, like legitimate news organizations. By the time I landed, the um, Weinstein Company, and this is years ago uh, when that was like before we knew anything, Uh um, uh, the Weinstein Company had to issue a statement because That's, I because oh I tweeted God. that I was upset that, is that the there was the greatest story <laughs> I've ever it heard. Great? Isn't it great? But anyway, my point is, you know, we live in a world where Carol and Carol they can't kiss, but where Paul Giamatti can exactly. be paid on. Exactly. Yeah. I so. mean, that's so interesting. And I'm I'm assuming then that they removed that moment when Carol put makes that pass at the young the, the older woman's name Carol and she opens her coat. Yeah, that's like it. that's, that's her like, pass. That's, that's like a not pass in there. you can't pretend didn't happen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I was like, that is quite a pass. Like someone who makes that pass, you can't be like, oh, I'm sorry, I just that was an accident. You know, it's like once you do that, you can't walk backwards from it that. Is such a beautiful scene. That was yeah, it, it is, is so beautiful. That, I mean, I wanted to make a, but I didn't. When people were walking out of that movie in New York, they all look stunned. Like, <laughs> good. I wanted to make a block. I wanted to take pictures, stand there all day and take pictures of audience members walking out oh of my Carol. God. They look like they'd been drugged. Like you just were, and on the, you know, that's a, possibly the greatest movie of all time. Well, I, I have a ton of affection for it as well. It is one of my favorites. And mm-hmm. um, I made a point to see it in the theater because something that I really love, and that's also why I made a point to, to try and see your movie in the theater I'm and, so glad and every you did. movie in the theater that like has queer content for like for two reasons. Number one, I want movies like that to continue to be made. So yes. I like, and put, that's the only way to be counted. Yeah. Put, mm-hmm. I put my, um, I try to make sure to be like to vote with my disposable income because if yes. you know this movie versus that movie, I try to vote with my disposable income. And um, then also like, I love the, feeling of watching something like that in community. Oh, um, yes. Because it, like, still has, even for me, you know, this feeling of uh, the taboo. Like, like I right. felt embarrassed watching Carol on the plane. The guy next to me watching Billions seemed to feel fine. But I was like, oh, God, are people going to see what I'm— I mean, it's like— Yeah, we, yeah. You know, you grow up with homophobia. You still, 
you can work real hard, but those moments of internalized homophobia are still going to pop up. Yes. And it's so nice to just like witness them and, you know, be and make the choice to be in community and watch something like this anyway. Because right. it because it feels like a like a release of that shame and all that. Uh, definitely, definitely, and it also is because this movie has her poems on screen. Watching it on a laptop is not the same experience. Sure, yeah. And there's there's a way in which there's a collective intelligence that you feel when people are listening to something that I mean, her work is so profound. I'm not talking about my filmmaking. I'm talking about Emily Dickinson's writing. It's so <laughs> profound to have this profound experience on screen with other people. It's adds it enriches it and it's meant to be seen on the big screen. And it's remarkably we've been doing so well. It's shocking. Um, and Molly Shannon is so thrilled with how it's going. When you she's say like, we've been doing so well, can you tell me more about like specifically what you mean? Do you mean reviews? Been, Do you mean reviews? Folks coming we've out been, to the theaters? Yeah, people coming out. We've lasted, like usually a movie like this will last in a theater for a week. It'll sure. play a week in L.A., a week in New York, and then it's gone. We are have been there for weeks. We I wanted to come on and thank you so much for accommodating me to have me on the podcast to say everyone get to the theater this weekend because <laughs> we we don't want this yeah. to be the last weekend. Yeah, and it's a date film. It's there's a love in it. There's history in it. There's comedy in it. There's drama in it. It has the greatest poet. Uh, America's greatest poet, um, and this incredible love story, these two women, 40 years, and um, they were in love with each other. They also had an intellectual relationship. Um, They inspired each other, and it's really an important story that has been kept from us for all these these years. And um, I remember when I was in college just hearing very creepy things about Emily Dickinson that she was an agoraphobe and whenever I thought of her I was just like you know like I had no desire to read her poetry I remember only knowing because I could not stop for death from high school and thinking that's not a very good poem and I I still don't honestly like it that much but her actual her other poems and I don't know how you felt with about the other poems in the piece are really very complicated and very contemporary. And they sort of encapsulate these psychological states. Yeah. They're so modern in a way that you just wouldn't expect. And they're so interesting. I mean, weirdly, I, I'm, I've been having a tough year and I was feeling like a particularly blue. I don't even, I don't even know, a couple months ago, um, mm-hmm. like before I knew about the film and I looked up a bunch of her poetry, like, and I probably hadn't been interested in what she'd written, like since high school, like you're saying, right, or maybe, right. maybe in college. Um, mm-hmm. But that was my experience looking at it was like, wait, straight up, when did she write this? Like, it is. It's unbelievable. It is. Um, and also like, it's funny to see, um, how her, like, the way she, um, like, structures things in terms of spacing and and the words that fit on each particular line. It's like, yes. we also— and we try to honor that. And I don't know if you could tell, there were things like the scene where um, Emily's in Buried Alive in the Grave, and that word. word lane is just singly on the screen. That's how she had the poem, and it's like— 
we tried to keep the dashes, everything, to, you know, to so that you'd have the ex- actual experience of her poems as you intended. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I feel like we've kind of caught up with her. I mean, I was I was thinking, like, I mean, Twitter is a visual experience, you yes. know? Um, and there are certainly jokes and, like, memes and things that work on Twitter because of, again, it's like a similar right. people making choices like that. So it's funny to see us catch up with her now how she was Um, exactly exactly yeah and I guess I'm curious about well I have so many questions for you about like you know what got you to this moment back for another game you know it what's going on just one more week till max fun drive (laughs) hard to believe it's been a heck of a year since the last one we're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! First, I'll start here, actually. You you said you're a playwright in your intro, but this was a yes. play first, correct? It was a play first, yes. Where was that staged? Um, it was at the Wow Cafe, which is the longest-running women's theater in the United States of America. Where it's is that? For- it's a former sweat sweatshop. It's on East Fourth Street in the East Village in New York. You st- actually still wouldn't know it was there. Wow! It's on the fourth floor of this building. This lady lived above it, and she'd always come down every day and be like, "It's too loud!" Like we were theater. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like <laughs> it was like if you can imagine. I mean, I started doing plays there in the late '80s, and we were like we were considered insane to be presenting queer stories. So on is, stage. is that always where you when you've been staging plays? Is that like that's your place? Well, that was my main place Got because it. that was where I could do. St- what was great about it was. Because the in-house audience was largely queer, you weren't explaining things to people. Like, it wasn't a plea for acceptance or, you know, you didn't—it wasn't—it was just—Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, said something really great once, which was— if you start with an audience who knows as much as you do, you can all go to the next level together. Um, like, how much would you need to explain if you were making a a play for homophobic Senator Jesse Helms, who was in the Senate at that time and was an enemy of um, people who were fighting for the AIDS crisis to end. Um, like, you'd have to make the dumbest play in the world to explain homosexuality <laughs> to, just, to Senator Jesse Helms, to right-wing, right-wingers. Um, so that was the idea. And out of that theater emerged Lisa Crone, who wrote Well, uh, and also um, Fun Home um, and the Five Lesbian Brothers. Uh, one of the Five Lesbian Brothers, Peg Healy, I'm still I'm working um, with her on a project we're writing together currently. Um, so we really did. I did a lot of plays there because it was also it was a sweat equity collective. There wasn't anyone judging who was good and who wasn't, which I loved because 
that there wasn't anyone who was... So because there was no filter, there was so much creativity that happened there. You just had to do labor on someone else's play in order to have your play put on. That's what Sweat sweat Equity Collective means. Yeah. You're working for the... Got it. Um, Yeah, yeah. So that's how we all put on our plays. Like you would run lights for someone else's play (laughs) and then they would run lights for yours. That's cool. Um, I mean, I've like certainly done uh, my share of that in the stand-up world, which is my first first, uh, profession this Podcasting is like my ninth profession, but yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, uh-huh. You know, it's interesting that that I'm what you're describing. I certainly have had that experience as a comic like a zillion times. I mean, I started mm-hmm. um, just by the nature of stand up. Like when you start, nobody's there to see you, and mm-hmm. so I was performing for like mostly straight audiences, and then now over time, like, my audience has self-selected more queer. It's not like I'm, like, right. straight people don't come. It's and just, also, like, that's who comes. And also, the world is smarter. Well, sure. Would you agree? Well, um... I mean, I, they're smarter and they're stupider, both. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What I was going to say is I actually don't know because I have had a really interesting experience of, like, my audience changing a lot, and it uh-huh. is outside of my control. Like, I didn't say queer people come to me like I'm stoked that that's my audience but right right um, right I would perform for anybody who shut up and bought a ticket yeah yeah oh no me too I mean yeah. and I also had the pl- plays that would leave wow and go to other theaters like Wild Nights yeah. with Emily we went right. to Boston it was performed in a bunch of universities um so it did my stuff did go around but um there was something great about no self-consciousness and no censorship. That's interesting. I mean, again, like here, like I think actually my experience has been, <laughs> I'm curious as to what this has been like for you, is like as my audience has gotten more queer, like I have to be a lot better. So I don't know that it's we've oh, yeah, gotten yeah. smarter, but my audience has, because they That's know what's true. going on. That's true. I, I have to be more interesting because I can't just come out and be like, Yo, and the joke is, I'm also gay. You know, like right, exactly. Because oh, totally, I, I have totally. to be so specific and yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I always use the argument because lots of people would be like, "Oh, they're just making theater for themselves," and it's like, well, when you go to let's say, an ethnic restaurant, it's always a sign that the rest, the cuisine is really good when people of that same ethnicity <laughs> sure. are eating there. And that's the argument I would use wow, for. that's great. I love yeah. that, actually. That's like, I like love that. That's really interesting. Yeah, what an interesting I re- I, response. I, because a lot of, it was really weird. I would see a lot of playwrights who would give interviews and they'd be like, it's not just for gay audiences. It's not just for gay. And it's like, you know what? I'm a gay audience. Yeah. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, find a mail order husband so yeah. you feel better about <laughs> me taking a seat here? You totally. know? Like, yeah, I love that. I mean, it has to be, it can't just uh, rely on the novelty of, hey, we're queer. There has to be more to it with a gay audience because they've seen that already. That's right. And I, I'm also curious, as you're saying, you know, you taking the play from there somewhere else I mm-hmm. I will say I saw I saw Fun Home when I when it was on Broadway and that was a uh-huh. very interesting experience for me you know I don't um always get to see queer performance like uh-huh. usually I am the queer performance right um, right right but you know Broadway is like so mainstream um that there were so many straight people there yes. and it was an incredible experience Sitting in an audience of straight people. Yes. And they had to watch us. 
Yes. Yes. And that is an, a whole other thing that I really I realized I really hadn't maybe seen before, you know, because like if I go to a Tegan and Sarah show, like right. there are some straight people there. But like this was just, you know, it's Broadway. Like it's like right. it's like right. white That's what was so amazing. That's with, what was so amazing about that production. So I'm a man. You know, and queer yes. performers and the content and everything. It was it's to me, I it I cried during it, and I felt like wow, like I mean, because yeah. I started making entertainment, uh, queer entertainment, a good thirty years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can imagine how different the world was then, um, the initial reviews then also were, you know, Madeline Olnick imagines Emily Dickinson is a lesbian as opposed to like this. Wow. You know? So it's the whole world has changed and it is shocking. And um, to what you were saying before about kids, I used to teach preschool. But it was like there was always that fear that was like, oh, the kids and, you know, that kind of stuff where you just wish that they're just like there were Disney cartoons as 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 much as our society has gotten more um, educated until there is a Disney cartoon where a prince marries a prince or a princess marries a princess or someone identifies gender-wise differently than their um, their birth gender, you know, like um, until there's that in Disney, kids are still going to have this framework put on their head because our narratives determine so much about how we think about ourselves. And and that's what this whole argument is over women directors. It's not about, um, gee, a lot of women don't get hired for this important job that's very prestigious and paid a lot of money because that's true in every industry. It's if we as a society have this ridiculously unequal treatment of women, where do people get that idea that that's okay? They get it in our movies and our TV shows. And the director controls how we perceive women. Literally, the director controls how you see people. Image size, image length, point of view, which characters we identify with, which characters we judge. All of that is controlled. That narrative is pieced together by the director. And to not have female directors as part of that conversation literally makes it that all of us, even women watching movies, are... In getting this subconscious prejudice themselves. I think that's such a good point. And I, I mean, certainly no argument here. It is so strange to still live in a, because this is such a logical, I mean, I guess, I guess it's not that strange because what, what you and I are, you and I are going to have an, a logical conversation about this and oppression is not logical. <laughs> it's illogical. Um, but I, I do feel like I hear uh, still constantly that idea of of um, special treatment or people being like moved through the ranks for um, oh tokenism to- like, exactly level. for tokenism and just to make things look better or to keep right. up with like PC culture, which is literally just a f- fucked up word for kindness. Like I just you know, and uh, so then I think about the the work that I do and the things I've been able to make, and I there. There's a straight man, you know, could not write the jokes I write or host right, the podcast right. I host or make the television right. show I made. So, um, right, the idea we don't talk that, about that. Yeah, no, but I mean the idea that if we want to talk about a rich culture, 
it's not that there's anything wrong about, say, a straight man making a podcast or being the director of everything, but <laughs> we lose something. Yeah. Like, even his even his um, ideas about women suffer because he doesn't get to encounter other points of view. That's exactly right, yeah. And also, I think it, you know, something I always pitch if I'm, like, trying to be kind, I'm like, this will also make you more interesting. If you don't have the control of every story, your stories will seem more interesting because right now, like, it's hard for, we live in this time where it's, like, hard for, us, you know, straight white men to stand out and people are, there. there's a... um you know, conversation about like reverse oppression or something like that. But it's like, yeah, yeah. if you let us make shows, I swear your show <laughs> will seem, it will seem fresh again. Like yes, people will yes. not be able to believe that a man has an opinion if you just let women have opinions for like a little bit. Right, but, right. Um, but well, you know what this reminds me of though? I just want to say, um, yeah, what is Molly it? Molly Shannon is so wonderful in this movie. She plays Emily Dickinson. Yeah, that's right. And she's been like, hitting the press really hard with just talking about what the story means when, in Wild Nights with Emily and what we lose when we lose the story of this love affair. Um, Molly Dickinson was an LGBTQ hero, she says, everywhere she goes on. And it's just so great because she can reach this wider audience that, you know, my work has never reached. And people are so excited and she's so beloved, you know, of a person. And she really has earned that because she's such a warm and wonderful individual, so kind. And she has such a great sense of humor. And it's really great to hear her. Like, I don't know if you saw her. She was interviewed in the New York Times. And this amazing, it's totally political article. Um, but it makes you just want to see the movie. You don't shut down. You don't feel like you're being lectured at. And um, I just think it's really interesting, you know, what we've lost by not having realistic portrayals of what people in the past, especially women and queer people, have gone through. Yeah. Yeah. Women, queer people, people of color. Um, yes. Obviously in there also and all the intersections thereof. Mm -hmm. I, you saying this is like a a big moment for you and then I'm thinking about 30 years, you saying you've been making art yeah, for 30 yeah. years. Yeah. What does that feel like to be like in the moment that's the, that's so, like you're having a ton of success right now, or you're at least getting celebrated? Um, yeah. How does that feel it, for you? It feels like a hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very odd. I mean, it's kind of, I had, did have one similar moment, which was years and years ago where, I was doing this play, and the, the day after rehearsal started, the Five Lesbian Brothers won what's called an Obie Award, which is kind of like a Tony for downtown theater. And I had been doing plays already for years, and I would send out press releases, but you almost felt like you were just taking them and dumping them in the garbage because there was <laughs> never any response. And um, so we started rehearsal, and two of the performers had just won an Obie. So all of a sudden, we got all this attention. It was for this play called Spooky World about this woman who had a job as a ghost in a haunted house amusement park that was kind of abandoned and actually turned out to be the front for a cult. And her ex-girlfriend, who kind of haunts her in these party flashbacks, <laughs> was ridiculous. We put this up. It was like, this had the greatest 
This was the most one of the most exciting experiences of my life because uh, the set designer Beverly Bronson, who actually just died about a year ago, created this incredible haunted house set that you'd go up to the fourth floor again of this um, former sweatshop, the Wow Cafe Theater, where you would just see normal stuff that was like black box, black curtains. That was all you saw. Everyone sat down to see the show in the first scene, and then the curtains would rise up in this haunted house amusement. It was just like incredible. You just (laughs) felt like you were being treated to this like Broadway experience in this tiny box theater uh, on the fourth floor of a a, um, building. But there was always this sense of, I guess, I guess I want to say pride that we all tried to take in knowing that despite what the world thought of us, despite what the value the world had assigned to us, which was that we did not matter and we did not matter in the theater world or in in the artistic world, we all wanted to make something really good. So that someone coming in and we, we would be the only show in New York you could see for women and queer people um, identified like that would be the only um, lesbian queer show you could see was at the Wow Cafe. Um, and we wanted people to come upstairs, pay their $7 or whatever, <laughs> and see something really special. Like, we all worked on it because even though the world didn't value it, we wanted people to come in and feel like we we were valuing our lives. <laughs> um, I'm, like, pretty blown away by that. That's beautiful. What, Thank you. What were you... Well, where are you from? I'm from... Uh, well, I was born in New York City, but I'm from Connecticut. So I have a little bit of that Connecticut etiquette, as I say. <laughs> um, but How did you I get was, back to New York? Um, I went to NYU, and I studied theater. I wanted to be an actor, but then I was in a comedy show with Molly Shannon, and it became really clear that one person had talent and the other person didn't. So you've known Molly that long. <laughs> yeah. So she was so I actually directed her when she first created the character that later became Mary Catherine Gallagher. Oh, um, wow. So it was, we did this two person skit where she was auditioning for me and I was this director. So she would come in and improv and I'd make lists of what she did and give them back to her. And she structured this whole thing, but she wrote it and uh, it was so funny. She would come in and do this amazing audition and like sing her heart out and jump all over the room, do all kinds of things. And then I would just say, Thank you. Like, I just was like this totally immovable, you know, director. Um, But it was amazing. And when we did this show, there were lines around the block to see. I mean, and it was funny because Dan Jinks, who went on to produce American Beauty and different things, produced that comedy show. And he was like the lines around the block show that showed him that. He was meant to be a producer. That's what he thought. But the lines around the block were for Molly. And, you know, I directed the show and came up with the, I came up with the framework of audition for that skit. Um, and it was, it was, she caused a sensation on the campus because it was just like, oh my God, like what is, like people hadn't ever seen anything like that before. Like you, whatever. You guys were students at NYU? Yeah, at, we NYU were at NYU. At the time. And we, yeah, we did wow. the show. Yeah. So so then I graduated, and then I 
vaguely started to, I started to gravitate towards the East Village performance scene as I simultaneously started to realize that I was gay. And I totally realized it when I was in the Gay Pride March after like a block two. I started marching and like after block two or three, I was like, oh, I'm really gay. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to support my friends or whatever. But it was like when we started to go around Columbus Circle, like something about the motion of it and knowing that everyone on the sidelines was looking at me thinking I was gay. Then I was like, oh, I am gay. I am gay. So then I was gay. And, and then <laughs> I, I um, this moment. <laughs> and then I joined. I was at the WOW Cafe and I also joined ACT UP. Um, so I was doing both of those, um, and it was, it was really, it was a very hard time because it felt like, you know, people, it, it felt, it felt like the world, there was a, just part of the world that was so evil. That was the part, those, the Republicans who were like, people with AIDS got it, brought it on themselves, and all the stuff that was going on. And um, it felt, um, it just, I just felt like there were two worlds. I mean, and at one point, I don't know if you saw the movie, it's really great. Uh, what happened, I think it was called What Happened Miss Simone, um, about Nina Simone. Um, I have and she but yeah. she was she got really militant at one point, and that's totally how I was like. <laughs> like all my former friends who were straight were like, "What happened to Madeline?" <laughs> I was just Did you shake like, your head. What are we talking about here? I know. I mean, I was just so I was so mad. What did I do? Mm -hmm. My mother then years later was still mad at me because she she thought I was going to assassinate President Bush. I never was going to assassinate him or anyone. I'm yeah, so yeah. really nice let's person. Be the, let's be the podcast I, okay. to break that you were not going to assassinate him. <laughs> yes, everybody. I wasn't. But she was like, I worried for years about you assassinating President. I was like, Mom, ACT UP was not a violent group. I thought maybe she thought we were a violent group. And she was like, that doesn't matter. There's always someone who steps out of the group with their own agenda. So it was like, even if I was in a nonviolent group, I still would have been the assassin. I mean, <laughs> can we? Can you give me like a time, like a like vague years? This was eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety. Um, yeah. So what a wild it, time to be in New York. It was, and it was. So here's the thing. So my friends, the five lesbian brothers, were on the first episode of In the Life, which was the first gay and lesbian and queer transgender, you know, variety show. It was called In the Life. There was the pilot episode. My friends, the five lesbian brothers. What was this on? I don't even know what this is. It was is. on PBS. Okay. It was the very first time there was a gay show on TV. The very first time. Wow. Okay. I don't know how I don't know anything about this. Continue. And, continue. Thank yes. you for the education. So, so five lesbian brothers, one of which was Lisa Crone, who wrote um, Fun Home. They were performing, and they were like, Madeline, come be in the audience. I was like, okay. So I go to be in the audience, and I sign one of those release forms. And I was like, aha, what, is, what if my mother sees me? Um, <laughs> and at one, so this was like, I was still coming out, and there was a reason I hadn't yet told her, which was, aside from being, I, had I yet been accused of being assassin? No, but she was a very, she was very extreme Catholic and was very homophobic and... As they've shown, people whose parents are more homophobic have a harder time coming out and come come out a little later. And 
that was the time when, for women, women typically came out in their late 20s and early 30s, statistically around that time that I came out. Um, so I went to see my friends in, in the life. Again, the first time on television, um, there was a gay and lesbian and queer variety show. And my friends were going to perform. There was a studio on it. So I signed a release form. And at some point during their performance, performance it cut away from them just to a close-up of my face sitting <laughs> and my friend Peggy was like oh haha maybe your mother will see it and say who's that gay man who looks like my daughter um <laughs> but then my mother did see it <laughs> that's how I had to come out to to her how did she see um, it she saw it because she was always because she was so homophobic she was always watching all the gay stuff on tv that is a very confusing action it's not (laughs) but like i was telling her all the all the gay things that my life involved at that point which i I didn't have any girlfriend but i would tell her about every act up and we went up to kennebunkport i went to all the different she'd be like oh i was looking for you on tv at kennebunkport and i was like well i was there and you know that's where bush the bush family had their summer home that we tried to we wanted to ruin their summer which we didn't enough but um so i would tell her about every act up a thing i did and you know it was also that was horrifying because we were the ones who went into st patrick's um you know like if there was a real catholics versus act up you know, construct. Um, and um, so, anyway, so... You went into St. Patrick's. Tell me more about that. No, no, no. I wasn't... That was before I had joined ACT UP. But it. it was with this k- kind of watershed moment in queer activism because the activists went into the church. Yes. And people were like, oh, we shouldn't do that. How would we feel if um, conservatives came into the gay center, um, you know, and people lay down in the aisle, you know, during communion so that people going up to get communion had to step over, quote unquote, dead bodies. You know what I mean? They yeah. Lying there saying. But it's true. The Catholic Church wasn't teaching. Um, they were given a lot of money to um, for AIDS patients, but they weren't teaching safe sex and people who were if you can imagine, so the city was giving the Catholic Church a lot of money um, for AIDS services, but the people who were coming in for AIDS services were having a hard time because of everything the Catholic Church espoused. I mean, this um, is, you know, this is still specifically a huge issue. I was raised really Catholic, and it's 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 no, it is no coincidence that most of the outreach that is done medically in like sub-Saharan Africa is by different church groups. Like that, that is who's providing right. the medical infrastructure and that those church groups, um, specifically the Catholic ones don't believe in contra- contraceptives. I know. Don't believe and in a- passing out condoms. So then there's an right. AIDS crisis in sub-Saharan right. Africa. Well, the right. people who are providing the medical care don't believe condoms work and not are not just, handing them right. out. And right. are specifically- not only do they- don't believe it. It's like when they're encountering people with AIDS, they're not educating them and saying, exactly. here's a condom. Here's a, yes. And if you give a condom, you're fired. There was someone in uh, New York or Boston, a social worker, 
working at a place run by a Catholic agency, and they were fired for giving a condom to someone with AIDS. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge issue. It's like, it's a huge issue. Um, And it's a huge issue if they're getting resources from the the city government, where it's just not— from private citizens who haven't been able to make this connection. Because I think that's the other thing that's tough, you know, when you think about, like, what forces are sinister. It's like there are people who are, you know, donating money, you know, at the church I grew up in who are thinking that it's going to provide food for somebody. And, like, okay, it might be, but it also might be going to perpetuate this crisis. Exactly, exactly. just be um, so easily— turned around, you know. Right. But I have to say that um, my proudest, when they talk about gay pride, I think my proudest moment as a homosexual (laughs) came when there was this really long article in the New York Times about this abusive priest. And, you know, the church had been moving him from place to place, as they do. Um, And he was the head of um, this... He was going to be appointed to be the head of this place called the Leo, I think it was not called the Leo Club, but it was like the Leo House, which was a house for runaways. And they decided not to put him there because they were like, those gay people, those gay activists keep following him. <laughs> and I, and there was a lot of controversy over the St. Patrick's thing because someone also went up to communion and spit out the wafer, mm. which was, you know, considered a desecration. But I thought, like, the Lord Jesus himself would have spit out that wafer to stop those young kids from being molested from a priest. You know, like that was when I saw that they didn't put that that father, the head of who had this long record of abusing um, um, children at the churches uh, in charge of that house for runaways. I just I was so proud of, you know, I was so proud. Um, That's amazing, especially because like. Statistically, those uh, those like unhomed kids were were probably family. They're you know statistically yes. like that's who's unhoused is uh, is us. Yes, so yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's really rad to uh, the small ways that we can protect our own, even if we yeah. Can't no, I mean it was things. so like I was like this is great that they're scared of us. I mean, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds extreme, but it, it what's important it's it's and it's still amazing. It's still amazing that um, you know what happened with the Catholic Church and considering that we were the ones who were being accused of being molesters. Yes, and meanwhile they were running the biggest molesting ring <laughs> that that the United States has ever seen. Yes, these are true things. I lived in but, Boston at the time. I lived oh, in Boston, wow. and I was at oh, a Catholic wow. college in Boston. Wow, when this all happened. Wow. Yeah, I was. I, I sat. I had a pretty front row seat for the whole experience. Wow. Um, okay, going back to the movie, there's no molesting in the movie. I there's know. no molesting in the movie. I didn't see one bit of molestation. <laughs> it was there in an early version. No, I'm kidding. No. Not at all. No molesting. <laughs> so no molesting. You're at this place right now that yeah. you're getting um, this new this new path, you know, out to people mm-hmm. that you haven't had mm-hmm. in the past. And yes. and do you know what you would want to do next? Um, well, I'm writing something with Peg Healy, as I mentioned, yes. and I'm, you know, I will continue to work 
I have my beloved acting troupe, uh, informal informal acting troupe, um, and I have been thinking. I mean, I know it's ridiculous, but I have been thinking of making a low budget superhero movie um, where it was all women superheroes who have dubious powers. <laughs> um, but that's a thought that occurs to me. Um, yeah, so I would like to keep making my movies, which are a, a little unusual, I would say. Yeah. Um, but enjoyable. Yeah. And and also, like, um, yeah, a little unusual. And also, I'm, inter- I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, or it's interesting to hear that your next, that you didn't say, like, well, then I'm going to make something bigger budget or I want to move in this direction. You're like, I will continue to be me and I will make this next idea. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting um, to get to a it's place so- and to feel mm-hmm. like, you know, what I want to do is continue to do the things I've already been doing. Cause- well, it's kind of my only option, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, they don't really, for women doing these low-budget movies, it's not the path to Hollywood that it is for male indie filmmakers. So um, there's that. But at the same time, for me, having made Wild Nights with Emily, that has like really three women leads yeah, written and directed by a woman, about a woman poet, it's really exciting because, honestly, we don't get a lot of movies where we're the protagonists and the antagonists as we are in this film. That's definitely true. I also didn't—I mean, I, I'm, like, aware of and have seen your other movies. I didn't realize this was you going in to watch oh. this movie. I just didn't—I just didn't put it together. I didn't look it up. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I will just say, like, I felt—we walked out of this movie, and uh, I said, oh, a lesbian made that. And my friends that were straight that were with me were like, uh, "How do you know?" I was like, "One of your Turners in it, Jackie Monahan's in it. Those pe- those two people would never be like like they're amazing, also, but they're so yeah. disparate. Like they're from disparate yes, worlds. Yes. Unless you know what connects, you know. Like I was like, oh, this is a lesbian. <laughs> also, that's it's good. made with like with the care that I think a queer person would put into it. But it was oh, also so nice so just nice. seeing like the stamp. Like that just made me really happy oh, and to like recognize so nice. the stamp. You that's know what I so mean? Nice. Uh, yes. And also another way that you can tell it's made by a lesbian is someone at. Wikipedia wrote up a Wikipedia entry for me. I didn't ask them to. They did it. And if you go to my this Wikipedia page that they created and click on personal life, there's one sentence. It says, Madeline Olnick is a lesbian and lives in New York City. That's all there is. And the lesbian is hyperlinked. If you don't know what that means, it goes to another page that defines the lesbian. And also New York City is hyperlinked. So you can, if you don't know what lesbian or New York City means, you can find out from my Wikipedia page. What if somebody got to your Wikipedia page having no concept of either New York or lesbianism? Yeah, like then they, that is a a very specific person. It's a great. Maybe it's a foreigner or yeah. an alien. Maybe it's a space alien. Yes, <laughs> and you would know. Um, yes. So, so I. I want to. That's it. One sentence. <laughs> well, Personal life. We have got sentence. a huge that's listenership. It. Maybe somebody could add a second sentence. What would you want yeah, it to sure. be? Sure. Um, 
She likes to tell jokes. She likes to tell jokes. <laughs> link to jokes. Actually, yeah, for link jokes, to jokes. Link just <laughs> just link to Cameron Esposito. For jokes, just write to me. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we're linked. Um, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for making this happen so quickly. And I just, before I send you back into your day, I just wanted to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person or could be a place or thing that made you feel like you can be who you are today. Well, that would obviously would be Emily Dickinson. Yeah. Um, because, and I'm telling you, these, the writing, the the thing that, another thing that we didn't know about Emily Dickinson that was kept from us was that she had a great sense of humor. And she was a true queero because she continued doing her writing, refusing to make changes that people suggested to make it more conventional. And she kept working at it despite the fact that the world did not encourage her to. But she had Susan and Susan encouraged her to. And they loved each other and she kept writing. So she's my ideal and I have to keep writing despite everything. <laughs> despite everything. Well, I I would say thank you actually um, for like the service that you did for our family um, in making this movie. I'm so glad it was you that told this story. You did it so thank beautifully. You. And, you know, then like, I interview you, and if that gets a few more people out to the theater— That would be awesome. Then that I mean, is a way of passing it along. And so anybody that's listening—you know, I just—I feel like one thing that we can do as queer people is just at the very least, like, try to shine a light on each other. So I absolutely. thank you for doing that in this movie. Absolutely. And also, it is fun to go to the movies. Yeah, it's fun. You know? I so we're chocolate-covered almonds— I laughed with my mom. I have the milk movies duds, are fun. and milk duds are good, and <laughs> popcorn, and there's lots of, it's playing at a lot of theaters that have reclining seats, so, and drink holders. It's really, it's something you can do that you can feel good about that also feels good. That's and right. it's a date, it's a date movie, too. It's a date movie. It's a movie you can see with your mother, as you can testify. <laughs> you can see it with grandparents. You can see it with yeah. your teenage children. Every it's, It just takes all comers. So That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. Congrats. Congrats thank on the movie. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.